Welcome all to the Catch Podcast, where we talk about the big three sports in American culture. Uh, I'm James Tingley, and let's get started. So, first things first, to uh, start things off, I'm going to make a case right here for why I think Deshaun Watson will win the NFL MVP in 2020, and as bold of a statement as this is, that's how we're going to start this podcast. So, Deshaun Watson, to give you a little reference, his three years with the Houston Texans, these are his career stats. So, game one, Deshaun Watson has only started six games. He played, you know, seven games total. Tom Savage started the first game, and Deshaun Watson came in in the second half. And the rest was history. He earned that starting job from the second he stepped onto the field. Uh, For Deshaun Watson's case, I think he has been covered up by DeAndre Hopkins' greatness that he has displayed in his tenure in Houston. DeAndre Hopkins has established himself as easily one of the best wide receivers in this game. And year in and year out, he seems to make the all-pro team almost every time, it seems. So, that being said, it kind of covers up a lot of what Deshaun Watson does great. What Deshaun Watson seems to be really good at is having an above-average passer rating. So, his average passer rating in the National Football League for, you know, a semi-decent quarterback is roughly between 90 and 95, right? Deshaun Watson, his first three seasons in the league, granted one of these is half of a season, but take it as you will, Deshaun Watson, season one, 103.0 passer rating, far above an average quarterback. That is damn near elite, if you ask me. Then the very next season, he plays an entire his first entirely full season. He has 103.1 passer rating. Once again, keeping up with the consistency of the prior season. Now, this last season, he did take of a bit of a drop, but I think the entire Texans offense kind of took a bit of a drop this last season. So I'm not going to put all the slack on him there. Now, when I say that, I don't necessarily mean all the aspects of the offense. I just mean the skilled position aspects of the offense. Now, Deshaun Watson, 98 passer rating, was his third season, granted... It is still far better than average, I think. I mean, at least three points better. Two to three points better. Now, for those who don't know what a passer rating is, it's basically to show your quarterback's efficiency. Is Because completion percentage isn't always on the quarterback. Sometimes it's on the receiver. Or sometimes a defender just makes an incredible play that you can't really anticipate. Now... The quarterback rating, basically, the highest being 154.8, I believe, or 156. Um, Still, it's something that rarely happens in the game of football. And when it does, nine times out of ten, it's a team that's got ten-plus wins on the season versus a team that maybe gets four. (laughs) But nevertheless, Deshaun Watson... Six games his first rookie season, 19 touchdowns passing, two rushing touchdowns, and 269 yards rushing. He did have eight interceptions, 
but mind you, that was with a 103 passer rating and a 61.8 completion percentage as a rookie. He was on pace to shatter the rookie record for most passing touchdowns in a season, which before Baker Mayfield had tied or broke it, I can't recall which one he did, but before Baker Mayfield did that the next season, Deshaun Watson was on pace to shatter that rookie record. He was on pace to close to getting 35 to 38 touchdowns passing and at least, you know, six rushing touchdowns on the season. He was he was on pace to tear up the league. And, and he goes out the next season and performs just as well as you would hope he would. Maybe not as spectacular as he had started the season, but after one season of spectacularness, teams tend to adjust to a player's game style. And once they have that breakout year, they might also still be really good, but it doesn't usually seem to top that breakout year. So, for instance, Deshaun Watson, his second season, 41.65 passing yards on the season. That is definitely one of the best. It's one of the best seasons he's a Texan quarterback has had passing yardage-wise. Only him, Matt Schaub, are the only quarterbacks in Texans history to throw for over 4,000 yards in a season. Now, 26 passing touchdowns this season and five rushing touchdowns on top of that with 551 rushing yards on the season and nine interceptions. So it looked like his interception ratio had gone down from his rookie season. His touchdown passing seemed to have been a little bit more in a standstill. And in fairness, that season, I will say, he did rely heavily on DeAndre Hopkins a little bit more than usual because of a lot of injuries that kept occurring to guys like Will Fuller and such. Uh, Will Fuller that season did have 15 touchdown receptions, or not 15, but I think in his time within that first two seasons, he had 15 touchdown receptions with Deshaun Watson, so it became very apparent early on that they were really going to have that special connection. The problem is Will Fuller's injuries seem to be more and more consistent as the seasons go on, figuring out that he really is injury-prone, and it's not just freak accident every now and then. So, that being said, Deshaun Watson has got a little bit of help his early years with DeAndre Hopkins, to say the least, bailing him out of a lot of rash decisions. That year, he also had a 103.1 passer rating with 68.3 completion percentage. Now, that completion percentage took a major jump from 61.8 to 68.3. He really established himself as a very consistent quarterback in this league. And consistently for the Texans, when they started off the season 0-3, you thought they were down and out for the count. The Texans were going to just... Oh, screw the season away. Bill O'Brien couldn't do anything with it, but turns out Deshaun Watson can pick up a lot of that slack for you as him and the Texans offense just went on that tear and then finished the season with an 11-5 and record and moved on to the postseason for the first time under Deshaun Watson's tenure. Now, year three, right, Deshaun Watson has 38 100 passing yards, 3,852. 
26 passing touchdowns yet again, but this year he has more rushing touchdowns with seven and 413 rushing yards, but he does have three more interceptions, a career high with 12, which if you ask me, is still relatively well, considering you still have guys out there like Jameis Winston who will throw 30-plus in a season. So considering that, taking that with a grain of salt, I say I'd take 12 any day. Now, this all being said, he only started 15 games as he didn't start week 17 against the Tennessee Titans, as the Texans didn't really have much to play for as far as standing goes. And a 67.3 completion percentage. Now, one thing I want to say about this last year he had with the Texans, which I think was honestly spectacular, and the numbers don't really look like it whenever it comes to comparing it to the previous season, but that's because he missed one more game. He more than likely would have had roughly around the same amount of passing yards if he had played that game, probably would have passed his passing touchdowns on that season, and maybe given a good game rushing-wise, he might have even gotten close to the 500 mark at the very least rushing on the season. So Deshaun Watson has proven to be one of those very consistent two-way quarterbacks to where you really can do anything you ask of him. And looking at the tape, how could you argue it? I mean, he's got over a 1,000 yards rushing in his first three seasons, which, unless you're Lamar Jackson, that's usually pretty difficult for a quarterback to do. But Deshaun Watson's been able to do it while also putting up close to 4,000 yards in two-season span, and he was projected to do so in his first season, too, even though he had not 4,000, but he would would have gotten 3,500 yards at the very minimal, along with... 500 plus yards rushing which personally I take from any quarterback uh it's just unstoppable for anybody to really defend um one thing though about how he kept getting covered up it felt like it felt like Deshaun Watson really just didn't have the help in the season his second season his first full season as a starter Offensive line was atrocious for the Texans. Absolutely the one of the worst offensive lines in the history of the franchise. And that's saying a lot considering that they had hold three of the top five most sack seasons in NFL history. That is saying something. And one of those three was Deshaun Watson's first full year as a starter when he put up 4,165 passing yards and 26 passing touchdowns with five rushing touchdowns and 551 passing yards. That is just unbelievable. If somebody was able to put up those type of numbers and was sacked 60 plus times, I would have never ever have guessed it unless you were playing Madden or something like that. That is not something that is usually possible. But the mobility of Deshaun Watson along with that field vision that that man has, and if he's able to have that type of vision even when he's got a size 20 cleat getting kicked in his face against the Raiders, I mean, and still able to throw that touchdown, we all saw that. That was a spectacular play. If you're able to do that type of thing, 
despite damn near losing your eye, then I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be considered one of the best in this league. The only reason he's not is because he has a receiver that gets 100 plus catches a season, 1400, 13 to 1400 yards every season, and close to 10 touchdowns a season. Now, in 2019, DeAndre Hopkins had to drop from his previous season in 2018, but was still an all-pro level receiver. Now, I bring up this drop because this whole Texans offense, skill position-wise, seems to have had a significant drop from the 2018 season. Deshaun Watson's ratings went down. He went from a 68.3 completion percentage to a 67.3 completion percentage and a 103.1 passer rating to a 98.0 passer rating. A a significant enough drop to where you realize that there's more the offense has to do. And that's not something that you would have expected coming into the offseason. Because coming into the 2019 season, the Texans went and traded for Laramie Tunzel, which... I think was probably the move of the franchise to help save Deshaun Watson's tenure here as a Texan because as they have learned with David Carr, you really cannot succeed in this league without helping your quarterback. The quarterback cannot do it with just a receiver. And that has been proven time and time again. And finally, it seems the Texans have learned from that mistake. And they go out and they get Laramie Tunzel and Kenny Stills in the same trade. And honestly, it benefits both. Kenny Stills adds that speed and that depth to the Texans receiving core in 2019 to where he adds that good slot guy. That guy to where if Will Fuller's down, you've got a replacement. And seemingly so, but Kenny Stills also seemed to have battled a few injuries here and there last season, not playing the full season. So it was a little bit more difficult than the Texans had really anticipated as far as Kenny Stills' production goes. But when you look at it on paper, they gave up two first-round picks and a second-round pick. I would easily take that second-round pick for Kenny Stills' production, however, because countless number of times, the they 85% or more of his catches were first downs last season. That is the definition of a clutch receiver if you ask me he didn't get a high quantity of catches but he definitely had a great quality and another thing will fuller you know previously had seven touchdowns with deshaun watson in the previous season in 2018 seven touchdowns of deshaun's 26 were will fuller granted will fuller only played about a handful of games with deshaun watson Regardless, those type of numbers are hard to ignore. Now, that being said, Will Fuller could never stay healthy. And it, once again, the injury bug caught up with him in 2019. So Kenny Stills became more valuable to the team with Will Fuller's injury happening, proving his He's worth the second round pick, if you ask me. There's not many wide receivers you can get in the second round that can be immediate starters right away. Now, uh, DeAndre Hopkins is 
like I said before, he has proven himself a legendary receiver here with the Texans. He has proven his tenure. He has proven he is one of the best in the league. He's done it before he even had a quarterback in Deshaun Watson. He did it with Brock Osweiler. He did it with Brian Hoyer. He did it with even Matt Schaub his first year. Will, Will Fuller will be having big shoes to fill by trying to replace DeAndre Hopkins. Now, granted, they did get Brandon Cooks, and I don't think Brandon Cooks is nowhere near DeAndre Hopkins' level of wide receiver skill, but he is easily the one of the fastest receivers in the league and one of the most consistent receivers in the league. And he may be an undersized guy, but he's definitely proven his worth here in the NFL. And he's also had a lot of good quarterbacks to work with. He's had Drew Brees, Tom Brady, and unfortunately Jared Goff being one of the only names that you can really say that he didn't have a good quarterback. But now he's got Deshaun Watson, who's proven himself to be one of the bright spots of this generation. And I think Deshaun Watson has been covered up by DeAndre Hopkins and his greatness. And Deshaun Watson will go out here and he will win MVP. Despite all of that, I believe he will win MVP. The rushing offense has gone down. But the way the Texans are spreading out the ball now, they now have more than one guy that can beat you deep. They've got about three or four of them now that can beat you beat deep. deep. (laughs) Sorry about that. And he just, he's got all the weapons at his disposal, I believe. And I truly believe Deshaun Watson has all the capability in the world to do this. And I'm going to leave that at that and we'll move on to our next topic, which is we're going to talk about on the same same topic of football. We're going to talk about the big talk of the offseason, and that's Patrick Mahomes' 105 or $503 million contract with the Kansas City Chiefs. An unbelievable amount of money, which I can hardly even fathom that amount of money. It's just unbelievable. I do want to say congratulations to Patrick Mahomes for being able to make this type of contract happen. And for the Kansas City Chiefs, it's a bittersweet moment because... Yes, you locked up your franchise quarterback, arguably the best quarterback that has been in the league in a long time, and definitely one of the best up-and-coming quarterbacks in this league for a very long time. Patrick Mahomes is getting paid $503 million over the next 12 years. He's going to have a guaranteed money of 400 or 141 points. $428 million in just injury guaranteed money. So if he gets hurt, he's guaranteed the minimal that type of money. If he has a, God forbid, he has a career-ending injury, he's guaranteed at least $141 million. You know how unbelievable that is. Then on top of that, just from his signing bonus, he had a 63.082 fully guaranteed contract through the 2022 season. Let's, let's not even get into the fact that 
The Chiefs are putting themselves in such a hole into the future by doing this and putting them in a situation where they are in a win-now situation. If they want a dynasty, it has to happen now because of this and because of the NFL salary cap. They are really putting themselves at a disadvantage into the future, but short-term, it might still work out for them. But we'll talk more about that in a bit as... In the 2027 season, the largest Patrick Mahomes will get paid in a season is $59.9 million. To put that in perspective, for the 2021 season, for the next season, the top played players in the Kansas City Chiefs franchise will get paid. Travis Kelsey, $9 million. Tyreek Hill, $15.85 million. Tyron Matthew, $19.73 million. Chris Jones, $21.5 million. And Frank Clark, $25.8 million. But Patrick Mahomes will still be making $24.8 million in that season as it's still covered by his rookie contract. But to put that 2027 season in perspective... That is like putting Chris Jones and Patrick Mahomes' contract together along with Travis Kelsey's contract. And those three key additions are going to be the worth of Mahomes' contract. Let's say if we added Chris Jones, Frank Clark, and Travis Kelsey's contract all together and won, that is the equivalent to Mahomes' contract in 2027. So let's say that is seven years in the future. We don't know if any of these guys are still going to be there except for Mahomes Even still, that's not entirely guaranteed because nothing is in the NFL. But in 2027, hypothetically speaking, let's say Patrick Mahomes is getting paid his $59.9 million. Let's say they are completely under the cap. Let's just throw a wild number out there. Like, they are $35 million under the cap. They would have to release a caliber, caliber players of... Guys like Chris Jones, Frank Clark, and Tyreek Hill just to meet the cap. Just to be not under the cap. And and if they wanted, God forbid, if they wanted free agents or even to sign rookie contracts might be even difficult being in that type of a hole. It's just, they put themselves at such a severe disadvantage as a franchise long-term by signing him to such a ridiculous contract. Now, I mean, this is ridiculous. How, how has nobody disputed this yet? I, I just can't fathom. $503 million when not a single player in the NFL ever has even been paid $200 million. Now, I would have been okay with $300 million. Because you could, you could kind of make that argument. We were getting close. I think the highest contract before that was like $189 million. Uh, I believe that was Andrew Luck's contract. And, oh, God forbid, <laughs> Mahomes pulls an Andrew Luck on him and retires early. Because they're definitely in a hole then. But I, I, I think he's definitely worth the money because of the short-term success he has had on his resume. In his two seasons as a starter, he's had... You know, about 75-plus touchdowns, which is unbelievable in a two-season span. And he's won the Super Bowl. And that's 
that's a hard feat for any player to do because many guys go their entire career without even making it, let alone winning it. I mean, look at a guy like Phillip Rivers, for instance, has never been to the Super Bowl, but has some of the best career numbers by most quarterbacks up to date. Now, Phillip Rivers, there's reasons why he didn't get there, and that's can go anywhere between lack of defense, lack of team success, or just flat, flat up, he just is not a clutch quarterback, and personally, that's how I've always felt, but that's a topic for another day, and now you're putting your team at a disadvantage if you're Patrick Mahomes for signing such a large contract, which... Let me put this in perspective. So for the 2021 season, the Kansas City Chiefs will be $25.7 million under the cap. Meaning, they're going to have to find a way to dump this money if they want to sign anybody. At all. And if there are any key free agents that could help this organization, let's say offensive line, for instance. The outside of tackle, I don't really think that the Chiefs have a really solid offensive line. It's it's good, it works, because they've got a lot of fast, speedy guys, but not necessarily one that I would go home to brag about. But now you don't even give yourself a chance to go get one of those guys. And presumably one of the guys that they're likely to let go, I think, would be Damian Williams, and you think Damian Williams' $15 million is really going to clear up that much cap? You still need to clear at least 10 to $11 million more, and that's just to get over the cap, not to make sure you... I just... It, it's unfathomable. And... I just think you're putting your team at such a severe disadvantage when you do something like that. I can't blame Patrick Mahomes because, personally, how can you blame a guy? If somebody's willing to pay you $500 million on a contract where you don't even mind signing with that contract, then why not? You know, you get to play what you love for 12 years in the same place, and you get paid $500 million for it? I don't think many people would turn that down, so... I can't really blame the guy, but Kansas City Chiefs, I believe they should have played it smarter. But that's just my opinion. Um, now, let's let's move on to the next topic. So, next topic we're going to go briefly, still needs to be discussed, because I would like to give my opinion on the Astros sign-stealing scandal. So, we're switching over to baseball now. And the Astros, what we know is they were caught cheating for the entirety of the 2017 season and partially of the 2018 season now the gm and general manager were suspended for the 2020 season jeff luno and aj hinch both suspended and the astros immediately firing both of those the second their suspensions come out the same day they fire them they try to basically move on from this and do better from this and the astros are fined five million and lost first and second round picks in the 2020 and 2021 draft. So they definitely suffered penalties, but a lot of people are very upset that the Astros did not have their players punished. And with good reason, I understand a lot of the frustration. Now, my problem is I am a 
Texans fan. I am a Houston fan with the Astros, Texans, Rockets. I'm a fan of those, so sometimes my biasm will cloud my judgment on a lot of these matters. But the way I see it is the Astros sign-stealing scandal definitely not something I approve. It's not something I would ever condone. I don't like cheating anyway. I like people winning fair and square because there's nothing like the satisfaction of winning fair and being the best. But the Astros, inevitably they cheated along with a couple of other teams have who have also cheated, which we'll get to in a second. But the Astros, they kind of put themselves at a an advantage when it comes to the sign stealing scandal because whenever news broke about this in order for the MLB to have a thorough investigation about who did what they to talk to the Astros players they granted the players immunity so they can give them their full honesty and they it wasn't just the commissioner and Rob Manfred it was also the uh players union for the MLB so they they both co coerced with each other in order to make this deal with the Astros and their players to get to the bottom of the sign ceiling scandal. And I know not a lot of people agree with it, but I think it probably was the most appropriate way to go about it, whether it was the Astros or another team, that is the best way to go about things and get it. Now, when it comes to things like Altuve's MVP and things like this, I do want to state that there has been proof that Altuve Although he was one of the guys who would contribute from the sign stealing, he actually didn't contribute as much as people had thought. And one of the main guys that I really am upset about is George Springer. George Springer was the 2017 World Series MVP, but George Springer was one of the, I believe he was the top guy to contribute from the sign stealing scandal and with the most trash can bangs you heard, George Springer was one of the guys who contributed from him the most, which is very disappointing because he was one of my favorite players, if we're being honest. And now for this season, he has started off horribly, and it's starting to look like that might have contributed to part of his good play, which is unfortunate, but in fairness... I don't believe anybody's off to a really good start this season as far as per player success in the ba national ugh, in the MLB. But I do believe that there is definitely room for improvement, and I believe that the baseballs were juiced last year, and that's why baseball was way more exciting than it's been in a while. And now the baseballs aren't juiced, and that's why we're seeing a lack of home runs. Now, that's not every game, but overall it seems like baseball's having less home runs. That's another story. Back to the sign stealing. The GM and of the Astros now is, uh, or the manager I should say, is Dusty Baker, who definitely, I think, is a class act, and he's came into the Astros, and I think he has handled this with the best way you possibly could as anybody who wasn't involved in the sign ceiling scandal, but still ended up, you know, having to join this team and deal with the same type of ridicule and the same type of 
hate that they've been receiving. Now, I want to talk about the other teams that were also caught cheating. Now, the Yankees, they're up in the air right now. It's rumored that they were cheated from 2015 to 2019. And if that's the case, they were caught cheating longer than any other team to this point. And that's not to include the steroid era, because that's a whole other story. But the side-stealing scandal. 2018, the Boston Red Sox were caught cheating with their manager, Alex Cora, who was the bench coach for the Astros during the 2017 season. So the, the immediate connection makes sense. So for that one, it makes sense for the Red Sox. It makes sense why they were just all of a sudden good as soon as Alex Cora came there and just started playing very well. And that's not to knock any good players like David Price and Mookie Betts who were there during those times. But to be honest, they played as a team a lot better after Alex Cora showed up. And we soon have found out that during the season they cheated, they also won the World Series. But all they got was Alex Cora fired and no outrage over the media like there is for the Astros and something that I think is a little bit of a double standard. Now, Rob Manfred has an unopened letter sent to the Yankees on his 2017 finding on them and public, there has been a court hearing that a judge has ruled that the public must see it and we still have not seen it and there is a good chance that Rob Manfred the New York Yankee fans is trying to cover up the Yankees cheating in 2017 and I just want to bring back a clip of Aaron Judge when he was playing the Astros he was looking on a tablet and he turned back to the camera and he looked like he was looking at something he wasn't supposed to. And technically, he wasn't in the wrong at that time. But nobody has that type of thought or mentality unless you're already doing something you're not supposed to. So I think the Yankees are kind of guilty based off of everything I've seen. Now, moving forward from baseball, as we will talk more about that, in the next episode, we're going to talk about the NBA briefly. So, NBA is coming back. You know, they've had a four-month uh, break from the NBA. They've had to deal with the coronavirus, and they have the NBA bubble going on, which is honestly probably the best way you could handle it because now they haven't had a person with coronavirus, I believe, in almost over a week at this point. So... Good on the NBA. They've they figured a way to isolate themselves, and they've all been taking all the extra steps and precautions to avoid uh, coronavirus, and, you know, it's starting to work, and now we're all, as basketball fans, able to enjoy watching basketball again, which I think is probably one of the best feelings out there, especially if your team is one of the teams that's been grinding away the season up and down, and right as you look like you're hitting your peak, Something like this happens. Now, last night was the Rockets and Mavs on uh, the second opening day 
the opening weekend of the NBA restart. And the Rockets-Mavs game, I was very interested in. It was a very back-and-forth game, a highly competitive, great offensive game for both teams. Both teams played phenomenally well. Kristaps uh, Przingis for the Kristaps Przingis and Tim Hardaway Jr. both played absolutely fantastic for the Mavericks last night. And uh, we saw Ross and Harden for the first time score 80 points in a game combined. Now, a lot of this, I believe, was Harden because James Harden came out and he was Mr. Efficiency to start. In the first quarter, he was 6 for 6, 23 points, and 9 for 9 from the free throw line. That is a fantastic start to the first quarter of the game when you come back after a four-month hiatus. That is fantastic. Now, Westbrook kind of struggled a little bit to get a shout-up early on, but he eventually found his groove, and Westbrook finished the night with 31 points. Harden finished the night with 49 points in the four-point overtime victory against the Mavs, and that was just Rockets basketball at one of its finest, I believe. They, they were missing a lot of key pieces. They were missing Eric Gordon. You know, Robert Cuffington was, was struggling in that game offensively. But his defense, once again, picked up for the Rockets. And they, they really made their case as one of these dark horse teams in the playoffs coming forward. I think moving forward, Robert Covington had a tremendous block on Chris Topps Porzingis last night. And if that guy can block a seven-footer, then what limits does small ball really have if your best defender can block any size? You know, now, in fairness, every player is different. I'm not going to compare Chris Tops to a guy like, you know, Anthony Davis or LeBron James. That's just not fair because those are going to be the realistically who the Rockets are going to have to get through if they want to make it to the NBA championship. And my case for the Rockets as a dark horse team is strictly if Harden can stay efficient and Westbrook can be efficient as well. If they both are just efficient scorers and passers on that team, this team will be damn near unbeatable. They have proven it since the All-Star break. Their record has just been tremendous. They have been one of the best teams in basketball since the All-Star break. Westbrook has averaged 30-plus a game since the All-Star break. Same with James Harden, who's been averaging like 35-plus the whole season, who James Harden just beat, uh, just tied Wilt Chamberlain for most consecutive seasons with 20-plus games of 40 points which is unbelievable to think about. I think James Harden is easily one of the most underappreciated players in today's game because he gets so much hate, but not enough appreciation. Now, granted, I do believe where a lot of the hate comes, I understand it. It's frustrating to watch as an opposing fan a lot, to watch James Harden get these fouls that, you know, really are just James Harden playing his type of, type of ball and just getting a foul that usually isn't a foul, but he makes it happen. Like when he does his little Euro step into the basket and he hooks your arms underneath his, and next thing you know, you got a foul. So 
from that aspect of always get, the way he would get to the line and things like that and people questioning his step back, I, I understand the frustrations of that, but you can't take away the fact that this man's still hitting eight threes a game, averaging 35 plus a game. That That is not an easy feat at all. I mean, you very rarely see more than like two players three players in the whole league that average over 30 and Harden's doing 35. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, he's putting up once again for the second straight year, putting up one of the highest scoring seasons in NBA history, top 10 highest scoring season in NBA history because of James Harden. And that's, that's just absolutely unbelievable. And it's, something that I don't think is talked about enough. It's not given enough appreciation. And James Harden, if he can figure out how to keep this same type of play in the postseason, I don't think there's many teams that can stop the Rockets. The Lakers being one of the few teams that I think have a really good shot at stopping the Rockets. And that's only because, not only because of LeBron James and Anthony Davis, but I think they have the supporting cast around those guys to where they can get it going. They've got really good guys that really complement these guys' skill set a lot more. And it it's it's a more complete team than the Rockets. And the Rockets, the small ball lineup, it's complicated. But based off the way the Rockets are playing it, they are mostly complete as far as a team goes. Now, that's not to say that it always translates to success, but it most certainly, as a small ball team, they've got some talent damn near at every position they play. But, that being said, my predictions for the playoffs, we'll have to see as they go move forward. Right now, I would say... The Lakers and the Rockets are my two favorites in the West. I do think the Clippers will also be one of those teams in there, but I just I don't see enough from the Clippers consistency-wise. Um, not against the really good teams. I just I haven't seen them play very well. Uh, they played good against the Lakers in opening day, but there was a lot of times where their star players would just come up short and just not succeed in any of their matchups. But, you know, teams play differently in the postseason. Teams start gathering momentum once it comes to the postseason, and they start to play like a whole nother team. So my postseason prediction pre-postseason is, you know, I think as of right now, the Lakers have a best shot, but don't quite entirely quote me on that because... I do believe the Rockets have a really good shot at running for it, but I won't definitely say anything until I see the way they play in the postseason against a good team. That is to be determined. But I think that's going to be all for it for today's podcast. Uh, it's been real fun. Uh, this is a, my first episode, first test trial episode. Uh, let me guys know. Let me know you guys what you think uh, I know stutter and messed up my words here and there but you know just trying to figure out how this thing goes let me guys know what you think uh and as always you know be smart stay safe and always strive for better you know uh, be nice to someone you know kindness is contagious and 
you know, try to make somebody's day. It can go a long way. I promise that. But, uh, all right, I'll see you all on the next episode and y'all have a good one.